Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got, and that's your time. I don't intend to take that for granted, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to stick around with us today. I hope you will enjoy this episode. If you are new here, I do hope that you'll take some time to check out more of our episodes, of course, after we've earned your attention with this one. Today's entrepreneur is a friend, Scott Wen from 17 Terawatts. He was introduced by another friend, Jim Wood. Hat tip to you, Jim. Thanks to all of you solar warriors that suggest folks that we should have on the show. Well, if you are in the broader energy business, oil and gas or what have you, or if you are an an oil and gas refugee looking for an opportunity to get into climate tech and clean energy, you might wanna take a listen for today's episode. Scott falls into that category, a Harvard educated PhD, spent some time with uh, the oil and gas industry and is now working on specific technology to solve problems for the homeowner and residential solar space. We're going to talk a bit more about that and how Scott found his way into that area of expertise in today's show. If you like what you hear, be sure that you are subscribed to the show. And if you are really digging it, it so helps us a ton. If you just click on that like button, if you subscribe and follow, and if you share inside of the Apple iTunes uh, ecosystem, if you share a review, all the better because it helps other folks find this content and uh, enjoy it as much as I hope that you do. We've got over 300 amazing episodes and founder stories and startup advice, just like today's story with Scott. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. So we're going to take a look today into the world of residential solar, but through a slightly different lens. As I mentioned, Scott Wen is today's guest, and he is the founder of 17 Terawatts. We're going to find out what that is all about, as well as how Scott found himself in the solar industry at all. But first, welcome to the show, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure to be here. It's hard to believe that sometimes these interviews can take a long time to queue up. Scott and I, a year ago, in fact, we're recording this right now in February 2021. I was just looking back at our notes. Our first call is February 13th, 2020. We didn't know what the year had in store for us. I'm really eager to hear more about how 17 terawatts has grown just in the year that we've known one another. But first, can you paint a picture for us, Scott, where you live in particular, because that bears a little bit uh, of insight into what problems you are trying to solve. But also, how did you find yourself in the energy industry broadly? How did you make a decision that you really wanted to be in clean energy? And uh, what's that journey look like for you? 
So I am calling right now from Austin, Texas. I am, I was born in Vietnam, but raised since early childhood in Houston, Texas. And so I consider myself a Texan. And I started off in very kind of different worlds than where I am today. So I have a PhD in physics from Harvard. And so initially my goal was to try to uncover the wonders of nature, the laws of physics. And within that process, somewhere towards the middle of getting my PhD, I decided that I wanted to do something a little bit more impactful, uh, more practical. And in particular, a lot of the environmental sciences were kind of the area that started to draw my attention. As I looked outside of getting out of that ivory tower, that outside of academia, trying to understand that industrial landscape back as a, you know, a young graduate student who didn't know much about it. I was one of many that were just looking for opportunities to try to make that impact. And so the, just scouring the way, scouring the industry for opportunities, I left physics and joined energy. But in particular, the one company that actually had a strong appreciation for PhDs was Shell Oil. And so I went from studying how atoms and molecules interacted at very at near absolute zero to Shell Oil, which was doing a combination of both their traditional searching and extraction of oil and gas, but also going various forays into kind of new technologies, new implementations. And so my first assignment was a combination of screening and scoping various alternative energies, renewable energies that could be applied to the shale technology portfolio. I want to back up just a bit because we didn't mention that you have a degree in physics from Harvard. I have to, I have to imagine that must have made uh, the family very proud to have <laughs> you, have you be able to fulfill that, that goal. Was that a dream of yours? Uh, were you at a young age sort of ushered into sort of this collective idea that you would go pursue a doctorate degree in something from a school like Harvard? No, not at all. I think I, that is a step below becoming a doctor. I mean, in the very stereotypical um, view that one may have of Asian cultures, (laughs) I think, I think my parents might be like, Hey, if he was a doctor, that would be just a little bit better. Um, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Doing, doing, well, you are no doubt not doing your part for humanity in the way that many doctors do. What do you feel like your time at Shell helped you understand about the broader energy spectrum that now contributes to your work day to day? Yeah, it was really a valuable time because it was a combination of providing me a perspective that allowed me to understand the entire energy landscape. And it wasn't just about clean energy that was really kind of sometimes the focus of a lot of conversation these days, but really what does energy make possible? And therefore the importance of energy that generally most folks really take for granted. And so understanding that landscape, understand that the need, what's really key is what energy makes possible. And therefore the trade-off that one really needs to understand is the challenge really isn't, can you provide clean energy? Is how can you provide clean energy that's affordable to all 7.7 billion people across the world? And that is a really big challenge. And we're only starting to 
address some of those issues today. Well, Scott, I know that your journey into clean energy starts in a, in a way that many of our guests on the show have uh, expressed. And it's a very personal journey into the buyer process and experience going solar. Can you tell me a bit about that and, and how you as a consummate tinkerer and thinker on processes started to unpack where there were business opportunities that you might be able to address? Yeah, for sure. Let's say about four, four and a half years ago, I decided, hey, let's go solar at my house here in Austin. So I own a home and I decided that to be great to look into it. And actually, the evaluation process was a little bit difficult. But the key thing to really understand is that I've been in the energy industry for over 15 years, but mostly all from kind of the technology side, the sciencey side of energy. This experience of trying to buy solar, install solar was my first foray into the consumer side. And what you start to realize is that in that process, what I realized was that it's not really easy for the consumer. And as I started taking a step back on understanding how the buying process was, plus the actual installation and finally getting the system installed, there was a lot left on the table, a lot left to be desired. And what you start to understand is that even though in this kind of drive to this cleaner energy future, all the focus really has been on the engineering, the hardware, the technology, but that relationship between that technology and the people that use it, that remains orphan. And this was experience that I had going solar as a residential homeowner with just one small part of it. And so I took a closer look at that specific problems, talked with more and more other solar homeowners, not surprisingly went through that same process and had that same experience. And then started talking to residential solar installers, not just here in Austin, but across the country and realized that it was a pretty big need just to be able to communicate between the solar companies and the homeowners. And what we realized was the big gap was solar companies, residential solar companies are really good at selling solar and really good at installing solar. They're not yet, do not yet have the capabilities and tools to deliver a digital experience that today's consumers expect. And that's the gap that we set out to fulfill. Up to now, we've talked a bit about how you were working on the petrol side of the business shell and you've seen this opportunity, but there's a, there's a gap in understanding a bit that, that I would say informs why you, why now. Can you give me a sense of your entrepreneurial background? What informs your decision? You didn't jump out of shell to start 17 terawatts. What informs your decision as an entrepreneur that this is how you're going to spend your time? And, and what did you do kind of in that intervening period? Yeah, so I spent about four years at Shell, and then I joined a small startup in located in Israel. So I lived in Tel Aviv, Israel for about three years. And what we were doing there was essentially searching for oil. It was a great experience uh, personally for myself and my family to live out in Israel and to really experience that, but also to grow the company from a really small be able to, to, to see what needed to be done to actually operate. 
And then after that, I also worked at another startup. I actually started mentoring a small company called Autonomous Marine Systems. It was a marine robotics company that collected data out in the open oceans using marine robotics. That was one of the first kind of forays in trying to understand that there is a technology and then there are particular gaps within the industry. And I think one of the key things to understand was that because of the current limitations of the technology and some of the applications, there was a wide gap in how one could actually try to gain value for a business. And so that was that learning that was being applied over to the current company. What are some of those main gaps that if companies had those the right tools and the right mindset, the right approach, then they could develop and build bigger opportunities and bigger value for the industry. Are there any particular tools? You mentioned tools and mindset, but mental models, management tools, anything in particular that from your previous entrepreneurial or even shell experience have helped you build the current, the current company? I'd say the most important, I'm not sure is necessarily a mental model. Um, we do have various frameworks that we think, but I think, let me just start by saying, the most important thing I learned as with through my previous ventures was to listen and listen to the customer. I think as a one of and this was a business development person told me for um, was the best thing to do as a salesperson is just to listen. And that though sounds obvious, actually doesn't get done very well in many circumstances. But that is extremely important in solar, in residential solar for us. And that's what we really try to understand. We try to listen to not what only the homeowner is looking for, but we actually actively very much listen to what the residential solar installers are also looking for. And based off of those, that's how we actually build out our products. And so we take that a step further by applying a design thinking framework to actually build out our product. You know, the conversations I've had with you are informative for me, instructive on this idea of design thinking, but also patience and listening as a skill. I know that before you guys actually launched a product, you spent a long time developing not just the software platform behind it, but the persona and spending Mm -hmm. time in the marketplace, not rushing to get a product to market. Maybe you'll pull design thinking into this, but tell me a bit about how, as you began to think, conceptualize, and then put a framework and flesh around what 17 terawatt would become, how you engaged in listening with who your would-be customers. That's true. We took uh, almost a year and a half from the launch of our company to actually the launch of the product. Um, The software platform is called Bodhi. It is a digital assistant for the modern solar company. And so we... Bodhi is a persona. And the, how we actually arrived at that state was that initially the first three months of the company was spent interviewing solar homeowners and interviewing residential solar installers from, from both the CEO level all the way down to the project managers and the sales folks. By doing those interviews, we start to understand their day-to-day activities. What are some of the headaches that, they're, that they have? and how they like to kind of think about their work. So based on that type of feedback, one can understand those are the aspects that start to influence the design of our product. 
So that part of that is the first step in design thinking uh, methodology is really trying to observe and listen um, to understand that. The next step is actually what's known as iteration. So we're, that's where you start to prototype and get rapid feedback so that the design gets successively better and better. And so once we got to that stage, we started designing the product and it's very easy. You, you know, the amount that you can learn by just having some hand sketches of what a product would be like and then going and talking to five to 10 folks is actually tremendous. And you can do that extremely quickly. So we go through that process and then continue forward um, until we start to do even the hard, some of the harder work, which is to actually start to code up the, the software. So as not to leave this unfinished as a topic, so step one is observe and listen. Step two is iteration. Are there other steps that you can extrapolate for us? The next step is just to launch the product. And so we launched our product. So we started the company in March of 2018. We officially, we started beta testing in May of 2019 and then officially launched commercially in August of 2019. So it was um, about a year and a half later. The key thing after that is the launch is really of what we will call the, the minimum viable product. And then what's really key following that is constant iteration. So we actually have a very stringent and very involved customer retention part of, the, of our business. And that is essentially monthly check-ins, getting feedback, because that feedback really helps to drive the evolution of our product. And I think that's key. I think as an entrepreneur, what you're really trying to do is solve your customers' problems, but then add on top of that your own creativity. And I think it falls into two main categories. One is, how can you just simply optimize your current product? And so what are the features that need to be optimized a few things here and there. So those are kind of smaller steps. But then further, you want to make those bigger steps forward in the product, some of the major features that will continue to put that company or your product at the forefront of the industry. And that is both a combination of listening to your customers, see how their business is starting to evolve, but also having a pulse on the industry as a whole and laying out that vision and then marrying those two to really define those major new features that are being, um, that will be worked on and included in the roadmap. Well, Scott, you mentioned a moment ago that you did three months of interviews starting to understand the day-to-day, the headaches and how they like to think about work. Any insights from that process that you could share with us about the Resi homeowner, uh, Resi home solar installers world? No, for sure. So I think one of the insights is that the residential solar market, a lot of the business is built on volume. The margins are relatively tight. And so a profitable business is really built on volume. However, you contrast that from the customer's perspective. For the customer, they only have one project. A solar company may have a hundred or a thousand projects, but for the customer, there's twofold. One is just their project. And two, it's a high, it's a high dollar purchase. So you're talking about a $20,000, $30,000 purchase, which is probably the third most expensive thing that they're going to make. Therefore, their investment in knowing how that project is being executed is going to have outmost importance to them compared to what you may think as a residential installer. So that's insight number one. It's just being able to handle that 
The insight number two, especially from the from the project managers and customer service representatives at the residential solar companies, was that they hated two things. They hated working on multiple screens and therefore multiple different software platforms. And second, they hated to en- having ever to enter in information twice. And so it turns out, if you start to look at their daily activities, it turns out a lot of it could actually be automated. And so using those two things as what I'll call design principles, that then influenced. We'll want to wait for that. <laughs> yeah, I might so, have to, I might actually, I need, I might have to move to a different location. The, um, there's some, I'm putting in a second, I'm expanding my solar system and they're op, they, they, they're operating right outside of yeah. here. Give me a second. That's hilarious. So right now, the interview is being interrupted by a solar install. <laughs> That's right. So I'm going from a six and a half kilowatt system to a little bit over 10 kilowatts. Well, congratulations that you're upgrading the system. I'll see if I can bring us back around to uh, where we were in the dialogue. Sounds good. You know, honestly, in your bedroom, it's going to be much better sound treatment. We should have started. Oh, there. yeah, <laughs> that's right. So lesson number one, if you join as a podcast guest and you're curious what room in your house has the best audio treatment, it's the bedroom almost always. <laughs> Scott, thanks for uh, for being flexible. And uh, listeners, thank you for joining us on this journey. Scott, you were saying that it turns out a lot of the installers processes can be automated and using design principles, you can think about how to help them. So as part of Bodhi, using those two design principles, we created one of the main features of Bodhi, which is to really be able to answer the question for the solar company whenever a customer calls in and asks the question, what's the status of my project? That is a key question that always gets asked and takes up a disproportionate amount of time from the project manager or the customer service rep come from the company focal point. One of our customers actually had, after we chatted with the project managers, they told us that they spent about 50% of their times answering questions, tending to customer inquiries. And the funny thing is that when a customer does call in, normally it's a simple question, but sometimes the conversations can go 15 minutes, 30 minutes, and depending upon the customers, it can continue on. And so what's happening is if you're able to provide a digital experience, a lot of consumers are starting to be very comfortable consuming that information digitally. And so one of the things that we do is to simply answer that question, what's the status of my project, by providing them those automated notifications Proactively. Proactively. And all of this is seamlessly. And the key thing is going back to the one design principle that I'd mentioned is that the project managers hate having to operate multiple tools. Well, this is all fully synced with the solar company CRM and project management software. So that allows us to be able to send out personalized messages because we're able to pull in contact information, project information, and then two, all those notifications are triggered off of various tasks and milestone completions within the software tools that they're, you know, already currently using. I am certain more than a few eyebrows just raised and a few pain points have been touched. 
I know from the consulting that I've done, uh, you and I have talked about at least one company who I'm fully aware their operations team spends most of their time answering this question. You know, the, the reality in the solar industry is that while we'd like to believe that we've got our shit together, most installation companies aren't using good software. They're not automating processes. They are overselling their capacity. And so the question, when's my system going to be installed is a pain point because they don't know. And if they do know, it's one or two people who can answer it and three or four people who randomly service customers, as well as the internal sales team, as well as billing and a lot of folks wearing a lot of hats and it can take time to answer that question for any one person. This is really interesting to think about. And I'm really glad that we tied it back to design principles as a way to gain insight into or get answers from the insights that you gleaned. My first question to you when we first talked was, who's the customer? It sounds like on at first blush, oh, Bodie answers the question, when's my system going to get installed sounds like maybe the residential client is the customer but who actually do you serve and who pays for the product and how do they engage with you financially our customers are actually the residential solar installers we work with any residential solar installer that is looking to grow so this happens to be both smaller companies but also for actually quite large companies why focused on growth specifically why not companies <laughs> that are quite happy being a regional player no so the folks that are if, even though if they're looking, even if they would like to be regional, but they're just looking to scale their business within that region, those are still those. The reason why I emphasize the word growth is because they're the ones who start to feel most of the pain. And so as they look to grow, one option that they have to when they start to evaluate the resources necessary to grow is, who do I hire? And our argument is that we can help improve your operational efficiency such that you can be able to service more projects and jobs with the automation that our software platform Bodhi provides. The second key thing that's really critical to growth is not only is this automation really important for operational efficiency, what we're really doing is focusing on customer experience as a whole. So this automated notification is only one small aspect of the providing a really good customer experience. And where does the customer experience eventually lead? Our central thesis to our company is that if you can cultivate these deep relationships with your customers by providing a good customer experience, then you can leverage the fact that there's a 25 plus year customer relationship that in, comes inherent with solar. So happy, satisfied customers, they're going to generate more referrals. So we have tools that will help to capture referrals, motivate and capture referrals. And then furthermore, sales to these existing customers with more and more energy products becoming available to the consumers, they're just a lot more profitable than always looking for the new solar sale. And so what we're talking about is changing or turning a current res solar and residential solar installer into a home energy service provider. And that's the that's the big growth that we're talking about, not just in number of jobs, but also in terms of a, a, a business model for that solar installer. Yeah. And the reality is a lot of a lot of installers see a resi system as one and done. I mean, we get it now, but I've been in the industry 15 years and I know tons of installers who have no follow-up, no back-end plan other than maybe 
a once a year mailer that says, hey, thanks for being our customer. If you let a neighbor know, we'd be appreciative. We'd give you a hundred bucks, whatever it is, right? They've got Mm -hmm. a bare minimum nurturing campaign. The reality of Resi Solar, even still, even in a world where Facebook marketing and YouTube ads are crushing it, is that referrals are more than 50% of the ongoing business volume for most installers. And it is, I mean, two to one, maybe even three to one. It's the lifeblood of most resi companies. And they are now just barely beginning to offer other services like smart metering, like smart home uh, automation, uh, like EV charging, which is an Mm -hmm. almost no brainer at this point. So I can see the need. And the more as a growth company, you start to add on these additional services, the more headache as a business owner, the growth becomes because you've got to now think about what product are we selling to this person? Where are we in that sales cycle? Is this a follow-up referral? Well, who was it referred from? Software helps to manage that. Tell me a bit about the installer experience through your early pilot customers and the incremental customer experience as a result of maybe working with 17 terawatts what feedback have you gotten so we've actually gotten very good feedback so one of our first customers was lighthouse solar here in austin texas they are a leading regional solar installer here in central texas and they've been around for now over 12 years one of the key things is that they've also been very much they built their their business on referrals, and but very little follow-up in any formal way, just like you described earlier. So a couple of things that actually was very important for us. One was we actually helped them re-engage with their customers as part of the, that initial customer discovery process that I had described at the very beginning. And what we really, what we found in that, that re-engagement on the insights of a consumer, a couple of more was that when we re-engaged their customers, a lot of them came back and said two things. One was, oh, Lighthouse. Yeah, I remember them. They were great. So that was good. There was a, still a strong positive opinion of the solar company, even five, 10 years afterwards. Second, the customers were then asking, wait, it's been five years, 10 years. What do I have to do for my system? Do I have to clean it? What about these batteries I keep on hearing about? And so there is a desire for the folks that are going solar. That's just a gateway into this home, you know, energy system of the future. And so they are really are, there is demand or it is desire for more. So that is a very kind of a key aspect that we learned. So when we implement, went and did the beta tests with Bodhi, we did the initial, the initial beta tests and we started with three months, but then what was key was we were able to do some comparisons of what the results were after uh, six months before and after uh, kind of the same period. Three things kind of came out of it. One was that because of the personalized messages that we were sending that were automated, the notification read rate was greater than 84%, meaning that the text messages and emails that we were sending, at least 84% were being read, which translated into the project managers just receiving far less phone calls. They were not only able to handle more projects, but the CEO of Lighthouse told us, hey, the real value is that my project managers now have the time to actually tend to the more complex projects, the more demanding customers. 
which they didn't have before. And then the other key thing that was really important is that this then translated into a 30% increase in referral rates for that company or Lighthouse over that same period. Because one is increasing twofold. One is by providing those timely updates, we're just giving a much better experience. I mean, the customers do have a portal. So, and then, then furthermore, inside the portal, there are tools that we provide that will allow them to be one, reminded that there is a referral program, and then two, to easily generate referrals. Through giving them bite-sized social media and other content that they can share out? Yes, that's true. So there's a combination of two things. One is within the customer's journey, there are kind of high, they're both high and low points of a customer's emotions as they go yeah. through the that journey. And so two things are important. One is to, at the right moments, to give them the opportunities to share their excitement. So for example, once the system is actually installed, photos of the system are taken by the installer, you should provide those photos back to the customer and then they're excited. You should allow them to share that excitement with their friends. And, and, and so those are kind of just through basic social media integrations. But then furthermore, as you're working and cultivating this relationship, there are then the right times in which you can remind them to what we call share the sun. And by messaging it in a way that they're using to try to grow their solar community and then giving them the right prompts to be able to submit submit contact information of their friends and neighbors, that's how we're able to increase referral rates. All right, so you've got Salesforce for your sales team. How's that working out for you? How great would it be if someone could actually just come in and really make your whole solar sales process deliver results? And what's more, what if you could actually see all the sales data in one dashboard? Pipeline, forecast, aging, deals that are about to close, the whole darn thing. Look, I have someone who can help do all that. They're called Indium. And right now, for a limited time, you can get a Salesforce tune-up, a process assessment from them entirely on the house. Just click on the Indium logo over at mysuncast.com and start getting more value from Salesforce finally. You know, it's the time of year where folks start moving around from business to business, job to job, career transition is at its peak. And it's often a time where folks look to someone else to help organize their thoughts and guide their principles. I've spent the last 15 years in renewables. I've spent the last five years coaching founders and startup executives in this space specifically. And for the last year, I've been helping folks transition out of oil and gas and other industries into renewables. And I've found that there are a few things that are commonalities. And I'd like to invite you, if that sounds like something you're interested in, to have a conversation with me about whether or not coaching might be in your future and working with me might be something that would help level up your business or your personal career path. You can fill out an application over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the work with me button in the very top right. And everyone who fills out an application, I'm going to set up a 15-minute clarity call. So I'd invite you to run, fill that out if this sounds remotely interesting to you. And let's have a chat. See if there is, in fact, a fit. I look forward to chatting soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Suncast. Let me know if I can help you in other ways.
talk to me a bit about the level of understanding you and your team had to go through of sort of customer psychographics, consumer behavior, customer experience behavior to inform how you are building your product. Because for me, it seems that you're thinking a lot about consumer psychology mm-hmm. and looking at what other businesses, models, you know, theory are you looking at to help really build in, build mm-hmm. into your software the way that you expect the customer to behave? Sure. I'll describe two very, I'll give you two very clear examples. One is with referrals. So there is a behavioral science framework called the FOG behavior model, which describes that if you want any particular behavior to be taken, it requires the simultaneous occurrence of three things, the proper motivation, the ability to take that action, and three, a trigger. So if we apply that to referrals, a person has to be properly motivated, and then motivation can come intrinsically or extrinsically, where intrinsic would be like, I just want to, I really like solar, I want other people to go solar. Extrinsic is I have an additional financial incentives, and most companies have a financial incentive. So have, you have to have that motivation. So you've got to have that. The company has to do a good job first. The second thing is the tool to be able to carry out that action. The easier it is for a person to carry out that action, the less motivation it is required. And so, for example, if you have to, if to provide a referral, if you need to find the solar company's contact information, you have to find your salesperson's contact information. How do we actually share that? Do they have to go to the web to the company's website, fill out a form? That makes it a lot harder for the person. So only the highly motivated folks will ever do that. So you make that process a lot easier with a portal, with a app and an easy form within that, that will make the number of folks that will be willing to provide that referral a lot greater. And then third is that trigger. And really the the main trigger that happens is nothing that has to do with the app itself, but it's just people having conversations with their friends and neighbors. And when the topic of solar comes up, they're like, oh yeah. I love my company. I love Lighthouse. I love Suncom and I love Ibsen Solar. These are the companies. And then that's when they provide it. So we really focus on incorporating that into our app, taking that fog behavior model, putting that into the app. So that's example number one. Example number two is understanding different personality types. There is another behavioral science framework called the Bartle player types. It actually comes from game design theory. And what it does is it says that people are game players are inherently motivated by four main things and classifies them differently. There are achievers. Those are the folks who are trying to achieve a goal. There are folks, there are explorers who are people who like to just understand the, uh, the environment that they operate in. There are socializers. These are people who play the game just because they like interacting with other people. And lastly, there are killers, which are folks who just like to make sure other people are feeling anxiety. One of the key things, and if you, if you look at that, you, if you look at that framework, you start to understand, wait, a lot of social media, a lot of everything that people do on Facebook, on Twitter and all that thing, it's a lot has to do with those main things. And so what was, what was this game design theory? Bartle, whatever? The Bartle, Bartle player types, B-A-R-T-L-E. Yep. Bartle player it. types. Got it. 
So one of the things we do is we have a community map. In our app, we have a community map of all the solar installations in that homeowner's neighborhood. So they're able to see who has solar, who doesn't have solar. If they're down the road, they can go and have a conversation with friends. We're appealing to that social side of solar. And so we've incorporated that. And with that, there's still a lot of room to further optimize and further enhance that experience. But that's one of the small things that we do. I've never, I mean, I'm really fascinated. And this is one of the things that every time I get on the phone with you, I learn something, which I love. And that's why people listen to Suncast. That's why you're here writing notes like I am, I'm sure. So the two things that I just learned that I was unfamiliar with, the fog behavior model, which I'm gonna have to go look up, talks about building in these triggers through proper motivation, ability to take action and creating a trigger. And then this other that I had never heard of Bartle player types. I already have clients that I know I'm going to use this with uh, (laughs) where we're inherently motivated as four different, four particular types. I'll just give a quick review. Achievers, which are goal oriented explorers that are understanding oriented socializers play. They just play to play and to interact with others and killers who basically like to see others in anxiety. I am fascinated by how you are building these into your company. And the more I learn about how deem smart entrepreneurs, especially in the SaaS space, the more I see how I'll call it, there's an analog for infrastructure companies and installation company that not only should be leveraging technology like what you're creating, but should be thinking the way that you're thinking, not simply thinking about how do we get to the next homeowner in this neighborhood, but How are we understanding social triggers that will inform which homeowner is likely to open their door or say yes or invite us back for an invitation to bid once we've convinced them they need solar? This is all really, really fascinating. And I can definitely see I love also how you shared some of the other companies that you're working with, Lighthouse and Ipsum. Uh, Thank you for that. Tell me something that is true for you that very few people agree with you on. I'll say that people are irrational. Quite a lot of folks actually agree with that. But I think within the industry, the solar industry in particular, that is not a common perspective to hold. Right. People consider this is a no-brainer. Not just the, but they're also tending to appeal to the rational side, the rational decision-making side of consumers, especially on the sales side. And it's not always going to be rational, that that decision. Many times the decision to go solar is an emotional one initially that gets rationalized after the fact. And so that really just tends to sometimes limit the, of the approach. And so let me just take a good example. A lot of the messaging around solar by installers is, hey, save money, save money. And so you start to ingrain into the customer's that they have to save money. But if you look at green utility programs that where you're like, you get to just sign up for a green deal. Yeah. Customers are willing to pay more. That's, there's a premium that they're paying for their electricity. Furthermore, even other types of, of, let's say in Austin energy, you have these community solar programs that you can subscribe to. Those are at even a higher premium that you would have to pay for. And so customers are not always driven by saving money. And by always trying to focus the message around that, that starts to limit the opportunities or start, you start to, you're starting to craft that customer down a a way of thinking that may not have been necessary initially. And then 
you know, you start to think like, why are some of the higher price companies or companies that are providing solar at premium prices, how are they doing so well? So there are a lot of opportunities out there that can still be explored if by thinking broader. What's the biggest challenge that you've faced as a co-founder, as founder, when you think about growing the team? The biggest challenge is finding folks that fit within the culture of our company. And as a startup, it's folks that are able to just get jobs done, take on those actions. I'd say one of the key things that I've always appreciated, maybe this is probably from my personal experience, is that I really value potential over previously established accomplishments. And what I like is that even if a person says, well, I haven't really done that before, but I, if I have a feeling that they could do it, I think that is the best type of person to have on the team. And so we do a lot of learning ourselves. And so I'm always constantly learning about new things. And then everyone in my team is learning and applying, uh, learning new aspects to their jobs, things that they've never done before. But because we're all properly motivated, that, uh, that isn't a problem. Do you have any formal method to incorporate continuous learning into the company culture? No, we don't have any formal method at the moment. I think the only really strong formal thing that we have is we have socialized weekly commitments. So what we, so all our team members actually operate pretty, um, pretty autonomously. We work as a team, but everyone's really responsible for their own areas, their own um, deliverables. The key thing is then on a weekly basis, we're always committing to some set of deliverables for the next week. And these deliverables are socialized, are, are made known to the entire team. And that is something that we do week in and week out. One of the previous members of our team, he's left now, he was telling us about it, came from a book that he was reading. And I was always very deliverable driven, but this idea of being able to socialize it further helps to get people to act, you know, be held accountable for those how do you social- deliverables. Yeah. How do you socialize it? It's on our Slack channel. Got it. So there's a Slack channel. What's the name of the channel? Goals. Goals. Okay. And is this kind of tied in any way to agile development as a framework? Nothing formally. No. So, I mean, we've got agile development happening within our develop, uh, software development, but this is more of just how can we make sure that people are accountable for the work that they do and that they get to set their own deliverables. So it falls under kind of the category where, you know, you get your best work when people really are pushing themselves. And so we're leaving them that opportunity. But furthermore, we're making sure people are also held accountable by, hey, I am going to, because I've told someone I was going to do this, I told the team I was going to do this and committed to this deliverable. I sure hope I can do this. Yeah. How do you hold them accountable? Where is there a daily stand up or a weekly forum? It's a weekly. Yeah. We have weekly meetings and it's just the, that's not really meant to be the weekly forum is not meant for the accountability. The accountability really comes from just being able other people know. So it's kind of more of the social 
appealing to that social side of human nature here. Sure, but certainly people slip. Do you just celebrate wins or do you highlight where there are gaps and ask for people to fill in? I mean, back to kind of the agile daily stand-up methodology. Yeah, exactly. So we, as if we are slipping, we are, all of us are here to help each other. So we're asking Mm, what's the current, what's the status, what's blocking it, what sort of resources are needed to get that going um, again. Yeah, to help. And and this is something that people that aren't familiar or using Agile as a development uh, practice, they seem to not understand, especially in the beginning, that it's (laughs) the ability to hold accountability is in the best interest of the organization. And it is not a personal attack when someone is slipping. It is simply to say, hey, it looks like we overcommitted resources or underestimated bandwidth. Do we need to move this project or idea either to the backlog? We're not going to work on it now or to someone else's bandwidth who is available. Can someone raise their hand who can help out here without a sense of judgment? And, And if you were raised as I was in the 80s and 90s, it's it's hard to rationalize that. Like there's always judgment when you make a commitment and don't and aren't able to hit it instead of organizational learning to say, okay, how do we get better at judging what commitments we can we can commit to, like what our bandwidth is? How do you resolve conflict in the organization interpersonally? How do you resolve conflict? We have open discussions. I am actually very open to saying, hey, I feel like there's some tension. Can we talk about it? And I think by having those conversations pretty frequently or just having open conversations with the team and in both on an individual as a team, we really are able to um, address any sort of uh, conflict in, in the company. And you can get this. I think that's kind of the key thing for, for me is that I think, I think like most people, we like to avoid conflict, but I've understood that addressing, ten- if we can start to sense tension, it's actually easier to address the tension early on. And so that's, uh, that's a practice that I'm hoping that I've tried and hoping to continue to try um, to be able to execute on. Awesome. I appreciate you being so forthcoming. And, uh, and I'll even say, you know, transparent and vulnerable about how you're thinking about uh, addressing issues. It's one of the areas that I wish folks were more thoughtful about. Uh, they start businesses in somehow, somehow assuming that there won't be conflict and they don't have a plan for conflict. They don't have even a mindset primed for addressing conflict. And therefore it gets swept under the rug until it festers and somebody leaves or there's a big fight or whatever. Right. So I'm a big advocate for, uh, as you suggested, uh, being very direct and having open dialogue and uh, identifying when there's tension, not just interpersonal between teammates, but especially at the co-founder level, you see so many times there can be months or years of unmet expectations. Mm-hmm. And it's really and it's really critical to be able to have a forum where those uncertainties can be meted out. Along that line, I'd love to hear if you have received any particular, you know, tomes of wisdom or input from mentors that has helped guide your own thinking about how to build the company. So I think one of the, I think one of the key ones was I already told you previously is to listen. I think that is something that is so important for both, especially on the business side. You always want to listen to to your customers. The second thing, and this is maybe more related to the business, but also on a professional level, is that it's always important to have cheerleaders. 
And so if you do good work and are able to establish good rapport with people within your business or other within the industry, there will be cheerleaders for your company and or for yourself professionally, but or for your company. And being able to rely on those folks, cultivate those relationships, and they rely on those folks, that's going to be key to getting the, uh, the business off the ground. And that's how we've been able to operate. And so we've been, we are, we do have a little bit of financing behind us. However, we're mostly bootstrapped as a company and we're able to actually get to where we are generating revenue, having customers appealing because early on we had cheerleaders, early adopters, both in, as customers, but also other folks within the industry. That's like, hey, hey, Jim Wood, go talk to my friend Nico. It's those things are so important in getting a company off the ground. Uh, and you've got to cultivate those since for, if you if you're hearing this and you're, we'll, we'll say younger in the growth cycle, this is a classic example of dig the well before you need the water, right? Your ability to allow others to see what you're working on and be vulnerable about it and say, hey, I don't know if this will work. I'd love your input and feedback is what cultivates cheerleaders because they see how hard you're trying. You know, I'll just, the analogy that comes to me is that the, the cheerleaders aren't just celebrating on the sidelines at a football game when the touchdown is scored they're motivating the players on the field all along and also motivating the crowd to stay engaged and watch. So a cheerleader sits literally between the crowd and the game and allows, and allows folks to get visibility uh, and know when to be excited and know when something is happening. Um, that's a really, that's really cool. I appreciate you sharing that. I, any advice that you would have for other entrepreneurs, maybe coming along behind you that are in the throes of startup life? Yeah, startup life is tough. I would say there is, there's kind of two sides to the startup world. And I think it really depends on the entrepreneur of how they want to balance the two. There's the one part, which is just building your business, getting customers, getting revenue, trying to build up your organization. There really is another part, which is the whole startup ecosystem itself. There is a balance between the two that different entrepreneurs can take. When I say the startup ecosystem, I'm talking about the incubators, the accelerators, the, uh, yeah. the going out to resources that you can get. Yeah. Resources that you get, but also you can also get into that whole ecosystem where the mentality is like always searching for capital. Your your the value of the worth of your company is how much PR you may get from and how much venture capital that is important as a resource my personal opinion is and this is how we've taken based off of my experience from the previous startups for 17 terawatts and our bodhi platform we've emphasized strongly the product and business over the startup ecosystem not saying that the startup ecosystem isn't important but there it it only it's there to be a resource at key moments in time early on. But the value of your company is not based on getting that next round of financing. The value of your company is actually signing that big contract or having reaching some milestone of users. Or in our case, you know, 
how many solar adoption, how many uh, so additional solar um, systems are we able to help our customers, you know, cultivate? Those are the things that are going to be more important uh, in, in our view. Are there any particular books that you have gifted or recommended the most and why? I mean, one book that I've gifted a couple of times is Dan Ariely's Predictably Irrational. He's actually in your area. So I think he's a professor at Duke. And some of the case studies that he outlines will highlight how what I mentioned earlier that people are irrational. Um, and I think it's really key that folks that can, if they, if they bring, if they, they, the readers of the book, if they start to look at those case studies, I'm sure they'll be able to translate some of those case studies into particular tactics that they can use within their, their professional life. So that's one that's um, pretty key. Another one that I've gifted is called, is a Don't Make Me Think. This is something that, this is a, we translate that into a design principle for, for us, but it's a very simple book that just talks about various strategies to make the user experience of websites just easier. The book is called Don't Make Me Think, and that's essentially the, the, the whole premise. It's a very quick read. You can read the whole thing in 45 minutes. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a common sense approach to web usability. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. right. Yep. Okay. Found it. So that's a that's great. And Dan Ariely, uh, it's interesting. It's often because he's a, a a professor at Duke, uh, understood that he is like in the neighborhood here. He actually lives in New York. I curiously was like, oh, man, he does. Okay. His, I was I was thinking, man, his TED talk is amazing. I watched him present recently for, for a reason I can't recall for another uh, university or or online thing and. I started getting curious, like, where does he live? And if you search, uh, actually, where does Dan Ariely live? Google will will tell you that he's in New York. Oh. Uh, yeah. But he, I will highly recommend his TED Talk, uh, and we'll link to it in the show notes as well. You know, sometimes I'll ask, what would your TED Talk be? But as I recall, you have a TED Talk. So what was your TED Talk about? The TED Talk was titled, Is Solar the Modern Day Fire? And it really talks about the human relationship between people and energy and how previously it was non-existent. The central thesis of the talk is that with solar, because it's so much closer that we are actually able to have that relationship similar to how back in, you know, back in the days, our ancestors was able to have a relationship with fire and with all the things that fire made possible, maybe the same can be applied to solar and this new relationship that we may have with energy. That is fascinating. Uh, I'll definitely link to that as well. Uh, And I haven't seen it, so I'll have to go watch it. Uh, What habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact or yield on your work and life? The best practice is to, is attention to detail. I think we may not, I try, many times we try to do a lot of things and I'll catch myself doing that too. But if I'm able to focus back down and pay attention to the details and do a few things really well, that is made the kind of the biggest, um, that's where I've had the best strides in, um, in, the, in my life, in my, in my business. 
And sometimes it's not easy to do. As an entrepreneur, there are, you can start at the mindset of an entrepreneur is all about possibilities. And having that is actually really, really key because that's where the creative part of them really brings out extra value. That's how you're able to define that. But at some point, it does need to help get translated into execution and proper execution is paying attention to the details. So my staff will tell you how picky I am that our, my text and lines have to be properly aligned in everything that goes out, both in our app, but also in slides and proposals and everything that we send out. Scott, one final detail before our final question. How can uh, folks find you? Where do you like to be found? How can folks engage? Yeah, the best place, I mean, is through LinkedIn. So I've got a LinkedIn account. Just please just go there, direct message me there. You can find out more about my website, about our company at our company website, 17terawatts.com. And then you can easily um, contact me there too. Fantastic. Let's end today, as we always do, with a bold prediction. Scott, what one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball for 2021? It may not happen in 2021, but I think it will still happen probably this decade. And even after the the big blackouts in Texas last week, the energy industry, the utilities will become more like internet providers. We'll have an internet of energy where we will homeowners will be the ones that dictate a lot of the of the services that they would want and then third party energy providers will be the ones to make that happen it may take a little bit longer than um, a few years but i think that's the direction that our people are going to go and primarily because they want to have they want to call the shots very interesting well i have learned so much about consumer behavior how we can improve the customer experience in solar and where we see all the business models evolving. Scott, when is the CEO and co-founder of 17 Terawatts? You can find out more about him and their company at the show notes page, as you will no doubt hear in just a moment as we say goodbye. For, but for, for now, I'm just going to say goodbye to you, Scott, before I say goodbye to the audience. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Nico. My pleasure. It was a great opportunity and it was really fun talking with you. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that is a wrap with our conversation all about the customer experience and improving your own referrals for your residential solar business or just thinking in design principles about how to build your company better. If you're eager to keep learning, as I just suggested, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find all the resources and highlights from this and every discussion along with social media links, book recommendations, and more over at mysuncast.com. And since you're going to be online, I would love it if you would share this episode with someone on LinkedIn. As Scott just said, he and I are both there. It's a super treat for he and I to learn how this episode resonated with you. What do you think it is all about and who needs to hear this story? Please share it. Hey, since you're already listening, maybe in Spotify or Apple, iTunes, would you just click on that subscribe button if you haven't already? And if you would care so much as to give us a like and give us a review, it does help others find the show. And I'm so, so, so grateful every time you do that. You know who else I'm grateful for are our sponsors. Our sponsors help make this content free to you and you can learn more about them as well as how you could also partner with us here at Suncast and help the Suncast tribe over at mysuncast.com forward slash 
sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Kia, Solar Warrior!